0: Hello,
1: I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and the ideas that are shaping our world. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about race, language, war, mental health, the future of humanity, and the meaning of life. Coronavirus will leave us with many legacies to work through over the years, but here are two of the most obvious. First, we cannot survive as a society without efficient, well-funded public services. Most obviously health, but also social care, education, transport. Second, the government has had to borrow an unprecedented amount, just over £300 billion in the last year, just to keep the show on the road, and is now facing a national debt of around £2.17 trillion, completely unknown outside wartime. This is not a happy combination, and is intensifying voices, which have never been silent, that claim we need serious reform, not only of the welfare state, but indeed of the entire social contract. The problem is, of course, that the voices are not all saying the same thing. Manouche Shafiq is a world-renowned economic and social thinker. She is former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England and currently Director of the London School of Economics. And her new book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract, tackles head-on the question of how we are to face up to sustainable social welfare in the 21st century. Manouche, welcome to Reading Our Times.
0: Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Nick. Now, if
1: people are familiar with the phrase social contract, it's likely that it'll be from the 18th century French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who used it to describe the nature of the state's authority over the individual. And of course, that is part of what you're talking about in this, but you're using it in a in a broader sense, aren't you? Tell me about how you're talking about the social contract in your book.
0: So by social contract, I'm referring to All the different ways that we provide collective goods to each other. And that can be within the family. It can be within the community. The state can play a role, but it can also be through the market. And so it is the systems we have in place to do things that are for common interest, but we can deliver them through many channels.
1: So that's really important, isn't it? Because you're talking about what we owe each other in the widest sense, rather than simply what we owe each other as mediated by the state.
0: Correct, correct. Because so many aspects that determine the outcomes in our lives are mediated through how our family is organised, or what community we happen to be born into, and what the norms are for operating. And we also deliver a lot of collective goods that are in our common interest through the market. So I look at all those different channels.
1: In light of that, you emphasise early on that the social contract is not therefore the same as the welfare state. But it's probably worth talking a bit about the welfare state specifically, because in this country, at least, the two are readily confused. The welfare state traces its origins back to your eminent predecessor at the LSE, William Beveridge, and his very influential wartime publication, Social Insurance and Allied Services, which became a kind of blueprint for the welfare state. Can you tell us a bit about what the basic logic of Beveridge's idea was, and also why it no longer holds so well for us today?
0: Mm. So... Leverage's basic idea was around social insurance, that after the war, we will build a country for heroes and provide people with a much better set of mechanisms to provide them security. And that, of course, included the National Health Service, a much better system of unemployment insurance and pensions. And that system was premised on a society that looked very different than ours today. It was premised on a society in which there was a sole male breadwinner, where people tended to have very few employers over the course of their lives, where people got education when they were young, and that was sufficient to last for an entire career where most people got married and stayed married and had children in marriage. And they only needed pensions for a few years before they, they passed away. And all of those things that I've just described bear very little relationship to what our modern society looks like. Families don't look like that anymore. Women are working. People live much longer. People change employers much more frequently. And for all those reasons, our current social contract isn't set for purpose.
1: So there's almost a bit of a perfect storm there, isn't there? There's a number of very significant kind of long-term demographic and technological and social changes that are converging on making the original premise of that particular social contract unsustainable. One of the results of that is, as you say in your book at one point, a large proportion of people no longer think the system is actually working for them. You say it's something like 80% or so.
0: Yes, it's quite surprising. Four out of five people in countries across the world, ranging from the US, the UK, China, India, feel the system isn't working for them. And that is, uh, that is really unprecedented. So as you say, a perfect storm where people feel like somehow the way society was organised isn't working for them.
1: But it's particularly remarkable, isn't it, given the fact that in the last 40 years or so, there has been very considerable economic growth globally. Hundreds of millions, billions of people have been lifted out of poverty. And with one exception, which you might want to talk about the elephant graph, and most income deciles are actually better off than they were, say, one or two generations ago. So there's this disconnect between, broadly speaking, getting richer, and yet at the same time, not necessarily feeling more secure or having greater levels of well-being and welfare.
0: Yeah, that paradox is what in some ways drove me to write this book, because I myself had worked in international development for 25 years and had seen this massive improvement in material progress in people's lives. And I couldn't understand why, despite that progress, people were still feeling dissatisfied. And in the book, I trace the roots of that dissatisfaction to a lack of security and a lack of opportunity people's incomes may have risen but they felt much more insecure in their lives and they were also very unsure about the opportunities that lay ahead of them and particularly for their children if you look in the advanced economies what's really striking is that most parents in the advanced economies today feel that their children will be less well off than they are and that is unprecedented
1: It is unprecedented, isn't it? I remember how at the end of the Jimmy Carter government in the end of the 1970s in America, for the first time, really ever, given America being such an optimistic nation, people felt that the future was bleaker than the past and their children wouldn't be as well off as they were. And now that's, as you say, almost a global phenomenon.
0: Yeah, there is a difference in the developing countries. In the emerging countries like India or Nigeria or China, parents still feel their children will be better off because I think their income prospects are just growing so much more. But in every advanced economy in the world, that is now the case.
1: And it underlines, doesn't it, this seminally important point that richer doesn't mean happier. For a while, we kind of assumed it it naturally would do, but it doesn't, does it?
0: No, what the research shows is that More money makes you happier only to a point, but that point is surprisingly low. You know, it's a sort of per capita income of about Portugal, that kind of level. (laughs) After that, more money doesn't seem to make any difference. And actually, what really matters to people's well-being is their physical and mental health, the quality of their relationships, and if they have meaningful work. Those are the most important determinants of people's well-being and happiness. And income plays a very small part in that story.
1: You might feel a little happier first time you get an iPhone, but the seventh iPhone you get really isn't going to give you much of a doesn't laugh, do you it? very much, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned the elephant graph, and I do want to ask you about it briefly. I've seen it in a number of places. It's really, really interesting, isn't it? Can you just describe it to me, to the listeners, and and what it actually
0: indicates? Yeah, it's a very striking graph. What it shows is what has happened to income in different groups of the population over the last few decades. And what it shows is that the people who have benefited most in recent decades from economic growth are the top 1% and the poor and middle class in the developing world. The people who have actually experienced no improvement in their incomes are the middle or working class in the advanced economies. And what that tells us is a lot about why there's a backlash against globalization. And what it shows you is that those groups who the so-called left behinds, be they those in the Rust Belt in the US or in the north of England, who have seen no improvement in their incomes in recent decades, are the ones who are the most dissatisfied. And that actually plays out in our politics.
1: Before we leave the the welfare state specifically, there was one point you made in the book that I really wanted to draw out because I think it's incredibly important and very widely misunderstood. A lot of people see the welfare state as simply a business of redistributing Mm. from those who have to those who don't. And yet you have this beautiful line quite early on in the book when you say the welfare state is three quarters piggy bank and one quarter Robin Hood. (laughs) Tell us about the piggy bank and Robin Hood.
0: Okay. So I think this is one of the most important points in the book. There is this perception that the welfare state is about the Robin Hood function, taking money, taxing the rich and giving money to the poor. That's a very small part of what the welfare state does. Most of what the welfare state does is redistribute income over our own lives. So if I'm a clever child, I can't go to a bank and say, lend me money for my education and I'll pay you back when I have a job. It doesn't work that way. That's what the state does. The state taxes people in working age and invests in us when we're young and looks after us when we're old. That is the most important role of the state. And in fact, if you look at the numbers in the UK, most people pay into the state over the course of their lives about as much as they take out. So net-net, we're sort of equally as well off. And one of the most important points in the book is to say that working on what I call pre-distribution... Having a state which invests really well in people early on and makes sure that they are able to continue to work and contribute to society for as long as possible means you don't have to do very much redistribution. Redistribution means your system has failed. And so if we do better pre-distribution and we owe each other more in that sense, we will not have to do very much redistribution because people will earn Enough to live well through their own work rather than having to rely on handouts. Mm.
1: Yes. And your point about pre-distribution is that if we get the market working for us, it means that the state has to do less directly in terms of picking up the pieces afterwards. Is that right?
0: That is right. And part of also, though, what the state has to do is invest more earlier in people's lives. So, for example, I put a big emphasis on the importance of early years education, which I think is the best way to equalize opportunities and life chances early and most cheaply. And there's huge amounts of evidence which shows now that really, really young children who get good nutrition and mental stimulation in those first three years of life, it has huge consequences for their incomes, educational performance and health later in life. And we've tended historically to think of those zero to three years as the responsibility of families. But given what huge social consequences it has, I think society has a huge interest in making sure those early years go well. Because if we don't get it right from the beginning, no matter how good a school you send a child to, they'll never catch up. Mm.
1: But society's role there is in helping parents and families to make those first three years of a child's life as positive, as encouraging as they can do, rather than stepping in instead of the parents. It's not a question of taking children off parents so parents can go to work to produce more income. It's much more of a partnership, isn't it?
0: It is. And there are many ways to do it. You can have preschool systems where parents can take children in the early years, but you can also have parental visits and people going to visit children at home and advising parents on a range of issues. There's a really good study in Jamaica which showed that children who had a weekly visit by a community healthcare worker who just taught parents things about nutrition and how to play with their children and engage with them, 20 years later, those children were earning 42% more than children who didn't get that weekly visit. So, big impacts and huge social benefits from what are really small, low cost interventions early in life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reading Our Times. Don't miss our other episodes on war, the future, race, language and much more. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not take 30 seconds to subscribe, share an episode with a friend, leave us a review or give us a quick rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners to find us.
1: The body of your book takes us through stages of life, really, from childhood through to through education, through work, through old age, through our commitment to subsequent generations. And I want to talk a little bit about those. But before I do, I want to kind of pull the camera back a bit and ask about your guiding political philosophy and I do this because there are lots of different objectives you could have for a functioning social contract you could have greater levels of opportunity of freedom of income of economic equality of capability I get the impression that you're actually quite a pragmatist and you want to inform your thoughts according to what works rather than being shaped by any particular school of political thought now have I misjudged you
0: I think you're right Part of my objective in this book was to resist being put into any particular ideological box. Because for better or worse, we're in a world now where once you're in one box, all the people in the other box have stop listening to you. (laughs) So, So as you can tell in the book, I sort of avoid very much falling into that trap. And I do draw really heavily on evidence. And so I try and follow the evidence, as they say, to what seems to work. And I am definitely very interested in social mobility and creating a fairer society. But I also very much believe in markets and the benefits and efficiencies they provide. I think the mistake that we made in recent decades was we had a view that markets were the most efficient way to deliver things. And yes, there would be losers, but we would compensate them. The benefits would be so great, we could compensate the losers. And the problem with that philosophy were two things. First of all, who wants to be a loser? And second, we never really compensated them properly. And so the people who lost out from globalisation and competition and outsourcing and all that stuff never really got compensated properly and given new opportunities. And so what I try to do in the book is come up with a way to make sure there are fewer losers and that people are supported through change rather than compensated for being losers.
1: Mm. But also that particular approach has, I think, a a profound kind of misjudging of human nature there, because it kind of suggests that you can be a loser, but if you're financially compensated, then it's all right in the end, which suggests that actually winning and losing is simply a matter of how much money you have, as opposed to your sense of using your own skills and abilities and contributing meaningfully to society. If if people don't have that, it doesn't matter how much you compensate them financially.
0: Exactly. And it goes back to our previous discussion about what determines people's well-being? Having meaningful work is more important than your income. And so people feeling like they're making a contribution to society, I think is intrinsic to the social contract.
1: You outlined early on three principles: a guaranteed minimum income for a decent life, that everybody should be expected to contribute as much as they can and given the opportunities to do so and then a provision of minimum protections around some risks, such as sickness, unemployment, old age, so on and so forth. Is there a priority to those three? Where do they come from? Why are they framing Mm. your thinking?
0: Well, I think the first step is the minimum to have a decent life. And I actually don't support a universal basic income, which many people advocate as a solution to that, because I think work is part of the social contract. And I think a universal basic income is giving up on people and saying you have nothing to contribute. So I would prefer to have people work, and if they can't earn enough to have a decent life, to top up their income through an earned income tax credit or some other such mechanism so that you can make sure that there's a sort of level below which no one has to go. So I think that is the first starting point. That minimum also should include access to basic health care, education, and a minimum pension in old age so that you avoid destitution. So that's step one. I think after that, we need to think about how we share risks and that at the moment, some risks, a lot of risks are now borne by individuals, which would be better shared collectively. And that's a huge source of anxiety and insecurity for individuals, because for many people, particularly those, say, in flexible work or precarious jobs, they don't know what their income is going to be from week to week if they get sick. They don't get paid. And we saw that during the pandemic where people couldn't even afford to take sick leave if they had COVID because they needed the income. And the second principle is really around sharing risks better. And the third is around investing much more in each other's capabilities. And that speaks to things like investing in early years, investing in lifelong learning, and making sure that people continue to be able to contribute for much longer than before. And that includes probably working until later in life.
1: Mm. So there are principles, then it comes to the critical questions of how do we achieve them. And Mm. one of the things that comes very loud and clear through the book is that there is a tremendous variety of different partnerships and arrangements between the state and market and businesses and family and voluntary sector that can work together to deliver these goods. Are there any guiding principles or rules of thumb that you would advocate in terms of what forms of partnership between these different institutions we should be looking to?
0: So I think that the social contract is deeply rooted in a society's values. And the choices that societies make will reflect those and which instrument they choose. But in many situations, there are many potential solutions. Look at healthcare, for example. You know, in the UK, we worship the National Health Service, we have a centrally run national health system. And it's pretty good. It delivers pretty good outcomes. In Europe, there is a a system based on employees, employment and insurance-based system with the state picking up and filling the gaps. That too delivers a pretty good set of health outcomes. So I'm relatively agnostic between whether a country chooses a a UK-style national health system or a European-style employment insurance-based healthcare system. But I would say that the US system, which is incredibly inefficient and expensive and costs 17% of GDP and delivers pretty unequal health outcomes, is not a good system. So I'm open to solutions where there are different models, as long as they work really well. But there are some things that don't work well at all. And the point of the book is to be able to say, look, there are several ways to solve this problem. Here's a really bad one. Here's two or three that work really well. But we must solve the problem, because these failings in our social contract are so pressing.
1: Mm. That does invite the wider question of culture, doesn't it? Because when you're, say, comparing a US health system and a European or UK one, you can come to some pretty confident metrics about which is working better than another, life expectancy and levels of health and amount of money spent and so on and so forth. Mm. But the idea that culturally you could draw a European-style healthcare system in America, it's just not going to happen, is it? Because there are so many powerful cultural deterrents to it. So I guess you have to also negotiate policy with the cultural context and what is the window of possibility there.
0: That's true. But I guess the other thing that I observe is that even within the same country, you can have very different models for different parts of the economy. So Singapore is a really good example. Singapore is often held up as this free market nirvana with low taxes, low regulation. But actually, 80% of the population lives in public housing. And there is a very centralized system of welfare through the Provident Fund. And so even within one country, you have bits of the society which are highly liberal and free market and other bits which are highly regulated and controlled. But I take your point about culture, and culture is important. There's some very interesting contrasts with family leave policies in different parts of the world. So the Nordic countries have very generous parental leave And Iceland has a system where the mother gets four months, the father gets four months, and then they have four months to share between them. And if the father doesn't take his four months, they lose it. And so Icelandic men increasingly take time off to help care for their children. Japan and Korea have tried something similar and now have the most generous paternity leave in the world. You can get two years paid paternity leave because they're so desperate with their low birth rates that they want to encourage people to have children. But despite that really generous policy, Japanese and Korean men don't take it because culturally they feel that it's the wrong thing to do to take time off from work to care for their children. So culture definitely matters. And the same policy in a different context might work and might not what extent
1: do you also think that levels of migration matter?
0: People used to think that you could have more generous welfare states in more homogeneous societies. That was often the explanation for why the Nordics had very generous welfare states, because, you know, everybody's the same, there aren't many immigrants, there's a greater sense of social solidarity. I think the more recent data shows that that's not the case. And actually, there are many other factors that matter for whether people support more collective benefits. But I do think the question... The real question is, when does someone who's immigrated get to participate in the social contract? That's really the fundamental debate that's going on. When do you get to benefit from being a member of this society? I think what some of the evidence seems to show is that it isn't really as much the level of migration, but it's the pace. And when you have sharp increases there's often a political backlash. But if it's a more steady, normal pace and it's absorbed in a more normal way and immigrants have time to adjust and assimilate into society, it tends to be less disruptive.
1: I want to ask you about health, because as you rightly say, it's been very much on our minds the last 15 months or so. I think it was, was it Nigel Lawson once said that the NHS is the closest thing the English have to a religion. (laughs) And boy, have we seen that the last, last year or so healthcare costs are likely to increase because we get older and because technology becomes more expensive and we're able to do more and more. So we have to face some quite tough choices there.
0: Yeah. So when you look at projections of future healthcare spending, they can become very quickly very terrifying because if you just project linearly what will happen, given rising technology costs and ageing, you get to a scenario where health spending more or less consumes all of public spending and that's very scary. Yeah. But I think there's two answers to that. One, which is, I think, a solution that's used quite well in the UK, is to assess how much each health intervention adds to years of good health. In the UK, they use something called QALYs, Quality Adjusted Life Years, which basically means this particular health intervention, be it a medicine or a procedure, how many more years of of good health does it add to your life? And the NHS uses a number of around £30,000 that they will spend on a health intervention that adds an additional healthy year of life of up to £30,000, more or less. And other countries set different thresholds. I think that's a very good thing to do because it enables you to allocate health spending to the most cost-effective way you can. And as a country gets richer, it can raise that threshold. If you're a poor country, that threshold might be a thousand pounds or even less. I think the other thing, though, is that we know that most of the improvements in life expectancy come from behavioural change, not from medical interventions. There are the familiar themes of eating well, exercising preventative healthcare vaccinations. And we need to find ways to encourage people to adopt those behaviors. People have talked about nudges as being a popular way to encourage people to change their behavior. And they have worked well in some areas more than others. So for example, when it's a one-off behavioral change, like getting a vaccine or signing up to auto-enrollment in a pension scheme, tends to work really well. It's hard to get sustained behavioral change like permanently changing your diet or exercise. And nudges work a bit less well in those areas.
1: Presumably because you've got to just keep on nudging, haven't you? Because
0: you just got to keep on nudging. That's part of the reason I like taxes. Um, So I think taxes of things like cigarettes, alcohol unhealthy foods are actually a good thing and demonstrably have reduced consumption. I mean, if you look at what's happened with cigarettes, the combination of taxation and also changing norms around not being able to smoke indoors and public education have massively brought down cigarette use. And so I I think this combination of using taxes, but also using nudges is a really key way to help bring down health costs. And I think the final thing I'd say, if I may, is that The other key part of improving health outcomes is people's social conditions, the environment in which they work, the nature of the jobs they do. All of those are big determinants of health outcomes. So the rest of the social contract Mm. is a really important part of delivering more healthy lives. Mm.
1: The other big takeaway from the last 15 months or so is a quite mind-boggling amount of public debt. And your penultimate chapter in the book looks at future generations. And there's a slight danger here, isn't there? Because you could answer the question about what we owe one another very comprehensively by looking at what we owe one another with whom we share our public space and with whom we are alive today. Mm -hmm. But there's a completely separate question. is what we owe other people who are yet to be born. Mm. How do we manage that particular slightly strange bit of the social contract where we sense a profound responsibility to people who are going to be coming after us, but they're not around to negotiate with us?
0: Yeah, it's very tricky. And, you know, economists have a strange answer to this question, which isn't necessarily intuitive to other people, which is we discount future lives to a great degree. We say future generations are going to be much richer than us. So they can inherit damages, but they'll be able to cope because they'll be richer than us. And they'll have all sorts of technologies that will be able to sort these things out. And as a result of that, The conventional economic view can sound very complacent about leaving future generations Mm. debts or environmental damage. I guess in the book, the view I take is that we can assume future generations will be richer than us, but we should value their lives as the same as ours. And so we do have to find a way to factor future generations in our decision making. And they obviously don't vote. uh, And so they don't have that mechanism to influence our choices. I think there's many ways we can do this in terms of the way we make decisions and how we assess policies. So, for example, the way we make decisions about future public investments needs to take future generations into account better. I give an example in the book of Wales, where they've appointed someone whose job it is in government to think about future generations. And so before building a road, for example, they will make an assessment about, okay, How much debt are we taking on? Is it affordable? Is the loss of biodiversity by building this road worth the benefits and so on from the perspective of future generations? Mm. I do think it's a very big issue, particularly as societies age and old people just vote so much more than young people. And so the voices of future generations and even current young generations are Mm. being overshadowed by the old. This is
1: uh, an unfair question to end on, not least seeing as I'm going to ask you to give a pithy answer to it, but I guess it would be remiss of me not to ask you, what do we owe each other?
0: Hmm. I think we owe each other more. We owe each other more investment in each other. We owe each other more sharing of risks, but we also owe each other more in terms of work and contributions to the common good. So I guess I'm trying to create a high investment society in which we invest more in each other and we ask more of each other. And that sense of mutual obligation is underpinned by mutual generosity.
1: The book is called What We Owe Each Other, a new social contract. Minusha thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. My pleasure. Next week... I'll be speaking to Rowan Williams about Christian humanism and what it means to be spiritual. We as human beings have the task of bringing into focus, bringing into language the dignity, the beauty of the world, serving that beauty, that order, promoting that harmony. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison... Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead, and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, It'll help other people find the podcast.